listening now to the episodes we recorded back in 2020, it's remarkable how much has changed and also how little. Time, or at least my sense of time, isn't what it was in the before times. Strange how in some ways it seems like yesterday, and in others, it's hard to remember life before. As Emily St. John Mandel says in her new novel, pandemics don't approach like wars with the distant thud of artillery growing louder every day, and flashes of bombs on the horizon. They arrive in retrospect, essentially. It's disorienting. The pandemic is far away, and then it's all around you, with seemingly no intermediate step. On that note, let's start our look back with a clip from my conversation with Aslan Hunter that aired September 4th of 2020. Her novel, The Certainties, which I adored, shows us what it means to bear witness and to attend to those who seek refuge, past and present. It is as resonant today as it was then. I, I think it creates some really rich philosophical and, you know, socio-political questions. And, um, you know, I've lived in Canada. I've lived in the UK, uh, briefly in, in Australia, um, you know, writer in residence positions in other countries, or I did my second master's and PhD in, in the UK. Um, and I'm really interested in journalism across cultures. And so for me to watch the degradation of news reporting in the United States over the last, you know, like especially, you know, in an administration, and I'm speaking of the, the current administration, where lies are being recorded and go reported in the news without interrogation. If we're thinking about fascism or thinking about the way that the media influences what is true and, and, and allows you know, uh, politicians to state things. I mean, we could also look at a country like Brazil that are factually untrue and that go uh, uninterrogated. Um, so, so I think these are incredibly alarming times. I mean, the, the swing to the right in, in many countries around the world. So I was really interested in thinking about what journalism used to be. And I did a lot of biographical reading about, you know, the shift in journalism towards opinion pieces. Like all of a sudden you have 24 mm. hours of a TV station instead of a half an hour of news at night. And you just get all these experts coming in and saying what they think they know. And so, so this kind of shift, you know, even blogs, like I have no disrespect for the internet or for people who are recording their own, but what's the difference between a, a tweet by a random person and, and news reports now. And so I think that we're in this weird uh, time and where media standards are more important than ever. And the protection of journalists. We're, you know, we're seeing record numbers of journalists disappeared today, killed, uh, car bombs, you know, uh, all kinds, you know, it's a strange time uh, to engage with the news and with the media. And so I, I wanted, I chose the 1980s because I feel like that there was a tipping point in Anglo reporting uh, where, you know, news started to become more opinion-based. You know, I, I think that uh, journalism is a form of uh, profound, I wanted to say artistry, but it's not because it's, it's sheared of that kind of embellishment, but it's, it's a form of profound truth-telling, you know, if done mm -hmm. well and properly. Um, and, and the infrastructures of the media uh, to be a, a newspaper editor, to the accountability that goes into that, as a novelist, I'm in awe of, of that form of accountability when done right. 
but you know what percentage of the population is selectively reading news that doesn't contain corrections the story collection cascade by craig davidson which he writes under the best-selling pseudonym nick cutter these stories are brilliant and insightful and tackle some of our deepest fears here's a quick taste of the prose in cascade with the canada reads finalist and national bestseller There are shapes that only live in fire. Hunger, that's fire's basic drive. And it's the purest, most incarnate hunger you can imagine. I've seen fire chew through lead girders, watch them soften and bend over backwards like a contortionist. I once saw a column of flame ripple up a sheet of aluminum siding so that it crinkled and contracted and curled right up as if rolled by huge, invisible hands. Fire will grunt and growl and come at you with the soft slitherings of a snake. It'll howl around blind corners like a pack of wolves and gibber up from flame-eaten floorboards and reverberate in a million other strange ways besides. Sometimes it sounds like buzzard talons clawing across pebbled glass. Other times, it'll come for you silent as a ghost, a soft whisper of smoke curling back under a doorway, beckoning you to open it. And that's when it's at its most dangerous, when it's hiding its true face. Up next, it's a conversation between Stephen Brockwell, an award-winning poet who moonlights in IT, and best-selling author and neuroscientist, David Eagleman. One of the things that um, I wouldn't mind just a brief overview for the listeners is maybe, you know, you lay out a handful of principles about the way to think about this. Like one is reflect the world, um, you know, how the brain has to reflect the world. And I, I love in the beginning of the book, when you're talking about how the brain adapts as you play, you know, how like babble is the way you learn speech by hearing yourself make sounds. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind laying out some of the, you know, key concepts for the listeners. I mean, the general story is your brain is locked in silence and darkness in the vault of your skull. And so it's trying to make a, a model of the world. And all it has are these signals, these electrical signals that come running up the data cables into it. And it's trying to understand what's going on around that. And so what's happened in neuroscience traditionally is that we, you know, if you pick up a neuroscience textbook, you'll see a picture of the brain and, and everything is labeled. It says, oh, this is for vision, this is for hearing, this is for touch and so on. But as it turns out, and really this is what the book is about, it's an incredibly flexible system. It's, it's a fluid system that's totally changing itself to reflect the world, to match, themselves, match itself to its input. And um, so just as an example, if somebody is born blind, this back part of the brain is not the visual system. It becomes other parts. It gets taken over by hearing and touch and so on. And one of the things that I illustrate is the, the way that this whole system is sprung tight like a mousetrap. It's competitive all the way down at the smallest levels so that if anything is not used, no real estate lies fallow. It gets taken over. And then one of the other principles is that brains leverage whatever information is streaming in. So it wraps itself around the inputs. And what this means is that we can actually create new kinds of sensory devices. So one of the things I've done, I've spun off from my neuroscience laboratory, a company called Neosensory. And we, um, for example, for people who are deaf, we've built a wristband that captures sound and turns it into patterns of vibration on the skin. And deaf people can come to understand 
what is happening in the auditory world through patterns on their skin because the signals race up the, their arm and up their spinal cord into their brain and their brain can figure out what to do with it. Uh, it's essentially just like what the ear is doing, but we just transfer the ear to the skin. And um, so this illustrates the way that brains leverage whatever information streams in. Um, one other principle, there are actually several, but I'll just mention one more, which is brains learn to control whatever body they discover themselves inside of. So uh, one of the stories I tell is of this dog named Faith who, who was born without front legs and Faith can uh, walk on her back legs bipedally like a human. And it's, it's amazing to watch this. It's, it's, not that, um, it's not that Faith is the only dog that can do this. It's just she's presumably the only one who's motivated enough to do this. But, but what this illustrates is that dog brains don't come pre-programmed to drive dog bodies. Instead, they drive whatever body they find themselves in. So if the dog brain finds itself in a body with only rear legs, it says, okay, well, I'll figure out how to walk on my hind legs. So, and again, it's just because whatever body the brain is inside of, it says, okay, I'm going to figure out how, you know, what my options are here and how to drive this. Here's a short taste of the prose with Suvankam Thamavangsa, an astounding poet whose debut collection, How to Pronounce Knife, has been long listed for the 2020 Scotiabank Giller Prize, was named one of the best books of spring by the New York Times, Salon, The Millions, and Vogue. Picking worms. The easiest way to get your numbers to be good was to find a mound of worms, all roped together and mating. When you got one of those, speed was everything. As the worms below that pile start to crawl back into the earth. But my mother got those too. She pulled at them slowly and steadily giving the worms enough time to let go of what ground they were crawling back to and come out whole into her hand. She filled her styrofoam cups easily with all their bodies intact. I didn't like how the worms felt in my hands, so cold and slimy and raw. There was no mistaking they were alive. They never stopped slinking and slithering around, stretching their bodies out into such a length that I wasn't even sure these were worms I had just picked. I could feel their bodies pulse and throb and tickle in my hands, and they would jab at me with a head or tail, and I couldn't tell which. Both ends looked the same to me. I wanted to scream, to yell out about how gross it all was and to throw them back to the ground. But I didn't want to shame my mother in front of everyone. So I held on. This was a job wanted by many. And I was lucky. My mom got me in. Our next guest is Will Ferguson. He won the Scotiabank Giller Prize for his novel 419 and is a three-time winner of the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor, who has been nominated for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the Impact Dublin Literary Award. His latest, The Finder, is a beguiling and wildly original tale about the people, places, and things that are lost and found in our world. Well, The Finder is uh, about a mysterious figure, kind of an anti-hero, 
who travels the world uh, collecting lost objects, not gold or treasure, but objects, real objects that have been lost. I grew up in a very, very small town uh, in northern Alberta, closer, I always say closer to the Arctic Circle than the American border. And we always joked it was where the birds turned around and came back. There was a hospital that uh, for the that region, like the Northern Regional Hospital for all those far-flung uh, reserves and communities. And that's where my mom worked. And I was born up there. Okay. So I've always been attracted to kind of the edge of things. I've always said I emigrated to Canada. Like <laughs> Canada was a Southern country. It was this exotic, it was where the radio signals came from. You know, you'd sit and you'd listen to the radio. Uh, and we didn't get television until, 19, I think it was 1976 in time for the, the Montreal Olympics, areas further north than us got television before us because it was very important for, you know, regional security and the Arctic. So we weren't Arctic. We were just kind of lost in the boreal forest. So I think I grew up just yearning for anywhere but there. And at the same time, I've been attracted to far-flung areas. I like, like I like outer Okinawa. I like New Zealand. Uh, I'm desperate to get to Iceland I was supposed to be in Iceland this year. It didn't happen because of the COVID. I was supposed to be taking a train from Moscow to St. Petersburg for a magazine. That didn't happen. And I was supposed to be taking the Rocky Mountaineer train. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yes, I've taken it before, yeah. uh, two years ago. So I was taking it again uh, with my wife. And so Iceland, Moscow, St. Petersburg, the Rocky Mountaineer, it's all been canceled. So what travel means right now, it, it's nostalgic travel, um, like all of us, stuck in armchair travel. I mean, that's what we're doing now. And uh, we're virtual travel. But it's a travel for me had always been a way of kind of getting out into the world, engaging with the world. And I, I really, like we all do, it's not unique to me. I really miss it. I miss the feeling of being in motion, of going somewhere else. Delivering literary thrills and chills, an author praised by critics and readers alike. Andrew Piper is the number one internationally best-selling author of The Demonologist, The Wildfire Season, and now The Residence. The two of them drew closer and shared what they had learned in their time in the mansion. That at the very heart of America there lives a darkness. Material and intelligent and alive. One that would outlive them both to sculpt the country in ways that over time might not be recognized as a darkness at all. They were an old couple already half forgotten by history and so with nothing of themselves to lose. Yet neither Jane nor Franklin could capture the specific thing they were referring to. It could be spoken about, yet resisted any one identity. It had a shape but could never be drawn. As when seeing the form of something in a cloud, the very act of pointing skyward, there, prompted it to shift into something else. The war, their lost sons, the people sold and resold, the devil that hides in the White House, the dead rising up to claim the living even as they walked in sunlight. Up next, we have a conversation between poet Manahil Bandukwala, winner of Room's 2019 Emerging Writer Award, and Shani Mutu, whose latest novel, Polar Vortex, is on the shortlist for the 2020 Giller Prize. 
Shani's an award-winning author and longtime friend of the festival. She participated in our very first edition back in 1997 when her novel, Serious Blooms at Night, took the world by storm. Shani's other critically acclaimed novels include Moving Forward Sideways Like a Crab, Valmiki's Daughter, He Drowned She in the Sea, and she's an accomplished visual artist. I also really wanted to ask, in 2015 and 2016, like you did this series of paintings of like Southern Ontario landscape, these really, uh, really beautiful, vibrant abstracts. And Polar Vortex is also set in kind of that Southern Ontario landscape. And I feel like in both cases, in some ways, you're taking um, this landscape and depicting it through different art forms. Okay, well, you know, I've, I've told the story before, but it really is the response in, um, to your question. Um, a few years ago, uh, before Vidya Naipaul died, V.S. Naipaul, I was at dinner with him at uh, my aunt's house. They're related to my family. So I was at his sister's house. And he and I were speaking, and he said to me, um, he basically challenged me, he said, why are you constantly writing about back home? Why don't you write about, you know, in, not in so many words, uh, uh, but, and, and that really got me thinking. Um, he was uh, curmudgeonly and said a little bit more than that. But what I took away was, you know, maybe I need to really um, be where I am. And the other thing that I keep thinking is that constantly, um, pre being praised for writing about our back homes keeps us from the, being where we are. And um, those back home places, they inform who I am and what my, my, you know, like the stories I tell and so on. But there is a way that I think that we are, as writers and artists, we're constantly being forced to be, um, be foreign, to be immigrant. I've been here for such a long time that I wanted to, um, I, I, I want to be, I want to be seen. And the other thing is that, um, you know, I was born in Ireland. I grew up in Trinidad, but when I took out Canadian citizenship, I lost my Trinidadian citizenship. So I am not even, uh, you know, um, eligible to read at events in Trinidad and stuff like that. So, so it's very, very odd. Like my whole life is, is so informed by Trinidad, and yet I am not, uh, I'm not really there anymore. My family is, my heart is. But, and I applied for a Chalmers Fellowship, and I got the fellowship, and it was about trying to understand citizenship and landscape through language and imagery and poetry and so on. And what I wanted to do... I, you know, because I, I know the, I used to know the plants and the names of them, how they grew, where they grew, you know, all kinds of things. And I wanted to have that same relationship. Now, hey, in Canada. Now, the thing is, when I was in, living in Toronto, um, that was a bit more difficult. You couldn't get out so easily. And But living here, I, I could do that. I was closer to water, closer to nature, you know. Um, and... Uh, that's what I wanted to also try to do in writing. So my in my photography and in my painting, I was like, you know, I would even take um, the leaf of a plant 
that here up in, in Southern Ontario um, and paint very large, uh, maybe 40 inches by 40 inches, um, painting a canvas that size with about one inch of the leaf, you know, like studying one inch of the leaf. It was almost a meditative kind of thing and um, for the eyes, for the brain, for the heart. And um, in photography, I was doing that as well. In polar vortex, I tried... I, I tried to do it in moving forward sideways like a crab as well to write um, some of the um, the winter. And in Polar Vortex, I wanted to match that winter also with, um, with the landscape, the countryside landscape. In 2016, journalist Tara Henley was at the top of her game working in Canadian media. She had traveled the world interviewing authors and community leaders, politicians and celebrities, but when she started getting chest pains at her desk in the newsroom, None of that seemed to matter. Anxiety forced her to step off the media treadmill and examine her life and the stressful 21st century world around her. Her remarkable book, Lean Out, explores the many reasons more and more of us are rejecting consumerism and searching for meaningful connection in this era of extreme isolation and loneliness. We, we were doing a segment um, on burnout and I was doing that story and I was speaking to a executive coach about um, trying to get an expert on how you handle that. And he was talking about what he was seeing in his clients all over the world. And I, I had one of those moments as I'm sitting at the desk, kind of hunched over my phone. And I, I, at that point, to control the chest pains, I had to kind of press on my chest. To, <laughs> so I'm talking to this guy, talking about his client's kind of moment of clarity about their own overwork and burnout and holding my chest, trying to control chest pains. Like it was comical. I mean, it would be comical if it wasn't serious, right? So I knew, uh, and my doctors had been saying for some time I needed to take time off. And um, so I knew that day that I was going to have to take their advice and take a medical leave. It just was very difficult for me to actually do it. So of course I filed my stories before I left the newsroom. Up next, it's Frances Boyle. Frances is an acclaimed poet and editor. She's an active participant in the local writing scene, having served as a board member and associate poetry editor for Arc Poetry Magazine. Her latest publication is the wonderful collection, Seeking Shade. I rocked on my heels in the dry dirt my legs had gone all tingly as me and Mum and Pammy crouched there in somebody's garden on a street where I'd never been before. I felt the sun hot on my back, making patterns with the shadows of beanstalks and rustly corn. I wanted to yell for somebody to come and help, but my throat was dusty and nobody was there who could help us anyway. I hugged the stupid ballerina doll, but I felt like throwing it away. What could I do? I knew I was supposed to do something. When we were waiting for Daddy's taxi after breakfast, he'd said, Celia, you're a big girl now. He said I was responsible, that I was supposed to take care of Mom and Pammy when he was away. I'd laugh to think about me taking care of a grown-up, but Daddy wasn't laughing. He held my shoulders and his face was real serious. I nodded and made my face serious too. Responsible. Responsible means it's your fault if there's a mess. And I knew being in this garden was a big mess. 
I didn't know whose garden it was, and I thought Mum didn't either. She wouldn't even listen to me, shushed me to be quiet, like we were playing hide-and-seek. But I knew we weren't playing a game. On the face of it, improvisation and learning have as much in common as free verse and haiku poetry or writing following the rules of grammar versus randomly choosing letters. And yet, as we will discover in our conversation with Stephen Nakmanovich, improvisation offers us insights into communication that just might open new doors to discovery and enchantment that could enrich our lives and lead to a deeper and fuller appreciation of what it means to connect with people and our environment. Dr. Stephen Nakmanovich is a musician, teacher, and author. He performs and teaches internationally at the intersection of multimedia, performing arts, ecology, and philosophy. Now, Stephen, when I think of improvisation, I think of musicians like Keith Jarrett and the late John Coltrane, or painters like Picasso, and perhaps writers like James Joyce, who were acknowledged as masters of their instruments and who had the luxury of, of throwing away the rules, if you will, and inventing something entirely new. Clearly, very few of us will ever attain the heights that these artists have. So how does improvisation apply to us mere mortals? Well, us mere mortals are having conversations all the time, every day. Even in the pandemic, we're talking to each other and we don't write down what we're going to say before we say it. We've all got the capacity to create, to speak, to listen, to respond. You know, every time we have a conversation with a friend or a loved one, we're listening to them and responding. And that is improvising. And it's often improvising with a degree of subtlety that is um, hard to fathom and very artistic and very intimate. So those of mm -hmm. us who may also play musical instruments or have some other artistic chops, we're simply carrying that ordinary everyday activity into another set of languages. So, Stephen, how can um, it, how can improvisation play a role in the life of, of a child or children and youth who are just, say, beginning to discover their own voices and agency? And and then um, how can teachers, parents, and edu educators help in this process or, or play a role in this process? That's a, that's a great question, and it's very complex. I mean, first of all, we have to regard small children as our teachers of mm. improvising uh, because uh, they know how to do it more naturally and more easily than we do. <laughs> and when a two-year-old is banging on pots and pans and creating interesting sounds, that's the template, you know. When a baby... I mean, when I teach um, workshops, sometimes for very skilled musicians or actors or dancers or whatever they might be, uh, we always begin with gibberish, which to me doesn't mean um, talking nonsense. It means talking baby talk. 
It means being able to shape syllables spontaneously, which we all know how to do because we all have a background as babies. Now, when the babies become older children and are in school, there are all kinds of pressures to um, either conform to the uh, rules as they've been given to the kids or to rebel against the rules as they've been given to the kids. But either way, a certain structure has been given. And, um, you know, on the one hand, improvising or expressive freedom is uh, freeing yourself from the rules, but it's also great to know the rules so you know what you're freeing yourself from. Mm. You know, it's great to, uh, it's great for kids to read literature so they know how words are put together by a variety of interesting people from different cultures. It's great to know something about music, to know something about art and science. And uh, so the structures of education um, work for and against the creative process. Uh, nobody becomes, uh, you know, you mentioned some really awesome creative people uh, at the beginning of this question. Uh, no one becomes a mature creative person without having forgotten how to play and then remembered how to play and then forget and then remember and then forget and then remember. And that rhythm is an essential part of the creative process. That was the festival's Neil Wilson in conversation with musician, author, and educator, Stephen Nakmanovich, about his book, The Art of Is, Improvising as a Way of Life, originally broadcast on December 4th, 2020. Stay tuned for some highlights from Season 2 in our next episode. <laughs>